Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal. And I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my Melting Pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, I'm back with another very interesting episode of Melting Pot, a series of conversations with incredibly talented and passionate people who, in my opinion, are also change makers. My guest today is the very talented Sarah McDonald, and she's also the director of Make Waves, which is located, I mean, they have offices both in Singapore and in London, and Make Waves is an award-winning filmmaking company. She has a very, very fascinating journalistic and creative journey, which I can't wait for her to share with you, my listeners. So thank you for joining me this morning. It's this morning for you, but it's the afternoon for me. Thank you so much, Sarah. Hi, Alice. My pleasure. Where does all of this begin? I I read that you were born in New Zealand, but is that where you grew up as well? Or did you move to the UK very early on? So just a little bit about you before we start talking about your fantastic and very, very intriguing journey as a journalist and a filmmaker. I did grow up in New Zealand, born and bred, and I trained as a journalist at university there and then left New Zealand very soon after I finished college and came to the United Kingdom where I joined the BBC. So so I've been actually living in the UK since I was about 20. Okay. Okay. So you joined BBC as a journalist? Yes, I joined as a reporter for the news begin with. And then I quickly developed, I think, a frustration with news, which I found very limiting in what you could actually delve into and, and say. So after a few years, I then moved over towards more documentary and long form. And then that was for BBC News. And then I I joined a a nightly current affairs news program. 
called Newsnight, uh, which is sort of the BBC's flagship current affairs program weekly, uh, nightly each week. And I worked there for five years. And that is where I would do some uh, nightly news, which was always deeply fascinating. We always had the top politicians on into the studio to be grilled. But we also had a small film unit there. And I really started moving over towards the film unit um, as, as this sort of a few years went by and, and really started to hone my skills in slightly longer form production, but also investigation. And that's what I ended up moving towards considerably in the end. Okay, so I guess that's that's what you found uh, more interesting because when it's, because I noticed that you've done, you went undercover to Burma <coughs> and then again in China and so you've done a lot of, uh, I, I would say, very explosive kind of direction of documentaries. Uh, how, how was that experience for you? Well, I started, I had just had my second child and I wasn't really, or more to the point, she wasn't really ready for me to go back to work. So I contacted my editor at Newsnight and just said, look, you know, my baby isn't weaning and is there anything that you can give me to research from home while I just stay at home a little bit longer with her and my news editor my editor of Newsnight uh, was the first ever female editor of Newsnight and she you know had two children of her own and I think it was the beginning of of you know, bosses beginning to understand that there needed to be more flexibility within the workplace. And I was incredibly lucky to have a very far-sighted, you know, editor at the time. And so she said, yes, can you have a look at the story that has come in to Newsnight? And it was a, a really horrific story of familial child abuse in Liverpool. And I started to look into it and then met the woman who was making the allegations that she had been basically sold by her stepfather on the docks of Liverpool to numerous men and, you know, abused in care homes and the police knew all about it and social services knew all about it and nobody did anything. If anything, they actually colluded by leaving her in the hands of her abusers. And it, as we, as I looked further and further into it, it became clear that a lot of what was being said was true. So we went up to Liverpool and of course my baby still was not weaning. So I had to take my baby with me with, with the nanny. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and so during the day, you know, while the, my baby was with um, the nanny being sort of walked around the streets of Liverpool, I was trying to work out how to use undercover cameras, which was just such a joke. And yeah, I just remember the BBC sent us a, a whole sort of, suitcase with, sec with a secret camera in it and it had a baseball cap and a lot of wires and a battery a really big battery and a really big recorder and we were meant to put all of that plus a head under the baseball cap which of course just looked absolutely ridiculous you know i mean there were just wires poking out everywhere and this, so, was, meant and, to be, this was meant to be an undercover yeah, exactly. <laughs> It was just hilarious. And so we, we went, I have to say that the woman that had alleged the abuse and, and who we, whom we believe um, was with us and we were going to send her back in to trap her abusers. She had an enormous, she had enormous breasts. 
I mean, just totally enormous. So she had this massive sort of shelf of bosom. So we went out and bought what was effectively like a camouflage tent, um, <laughs> a camouflage jacket for her and and just, you know, started, you know, poking holes in it and adjusting it and putting the lens into dark spots. And so we fashioned our own place to put the secret camera. And then we, we went in and, and she had reestablished uh, contact with her abuser, stepfather, and a number of other people within Liverpool who had abused her. And then over the next seven months, we would go back and forth from London to Liverpool, always taking my baby with me. And we just trapped them on camera slowly, slowly across that time. And then when I got back to, after we'd sort of finally got a lot of stuff um, that really showed that they were abusers and, and had admitted it, uh, the BBC said to me that I had to go back and actually confront them in person on camera. And so I had to go back up with a cameraman and knock on the door of the abuser and say, hi, you know, Sarah McDonald, BBC News Night. I understand that you're a paedophile. And anyway, the abuser actually let me into the house and we sat down and over the next sort of hour and a half in between sort of talking about budgies and growing strawberries, he, I would gradually talk to him about the allegations that his stepdaughter was making against him. And he effectively admitted it to me on camera. So I put the film out. It was during a time of heightened tensions in the UK around this particular subject. There was a, a tabloid newspaper at the time called the News of the World, a Murdoch-owned newspaper, which has since had to be closed down because of controversy. And they were running stories about paedophiles on council estates and people were being sort of burned out of their homes you know, f falsely accused. So we actually had to then phone the night that this film was going out on Newsnight. Uh, we had taken over the entire program, which was unusual because um, the program's 45 minutes normally and it's made up of both live interviews and, and little packages and then maybe a little film of about 12 minutes. But this undercover investigation I did was an hour and took over the whole of Newsnight that night. And I had to phone the abusers and say, look, we're putting out a, a program tonight and we really recommend that you either take yourself down to the local police station for protection or you leave your home and go somewhere where you will feel safe and no one knows where you are. And anyway, the film went out and, you know, uh, the proverbial hit the fan. And there was a police investigation, a social services investigation. Three men were ultimately jailed for many, many years for the abuse that they inflicted upon my subject, Shai Keenan, and her sisters, and a number of other children as well. And it led to her receiving a Woman of the Year prize by the Prime Minister at the time. And she wrote a book. And I won an BAFTA award BAFTA. for Newsnight yeah. as a new director. Wow. Wow. And all of this with your little baby in tow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. It was a kind of explosive time, you know, to be <laughs> exactly having a, a child. And in fact, it, it was... It was difficult, you know. I mean, I already had one child. I had a stepson as well who I, you know, absolutely love and adore. And I found just being a new mother again with all those hormones washing through you and doing a story about really terrible child abuse, you know, it was disturbing, as you can imagine. But it, it, it then led me to 
it just led me to understand that I really loved deep investigations. And, and so that was the start of that part of my career. And I, I sort of left news and moved towards current affairs after that. So all the uh, different documentaries that you have, that you have directed, which are, um, I can see they're quite controversial, were they all subjects that BBC um, sort of gave to you and said, okay, now this is the lead and you have to develop the story? Or was it things that you researched and discovered for yourself? It's a combination of the two. So when I finished the Newsnight film, I left Newsnight and moved into an investigative unit within the BBC. And we always had to have a counsellor with us while I was working with Shaikinen, the abused now adult, but child originally. And that counsellor, I spent a lot of time with, Colm O'Gorman, who ran a survivor's counselling service in London. But he was um, Irish. And the many hours that we used to sit outside while Shai was, you know, basically trapping her abusers, we would be sitting outside in a car listening on radio um, microphones and things to ensure that she was safe but also we would just spend hours in the car and I um, I used to talk to him about how he ended up be running the survivors counseling service and he said it was because he had been abused by a catholic priest in Ireland growing up and his story was so extraordinary and I I didn't grow up catholic I, I really didn't understand much about the Catholic Church, um, but of course, you you know, everyone had heard stories behind the scenes, you know, a sort of smirking jokiness about abusing priests, you know, which was not taken quite so seriously in those days. And uh, I said to him, while we were investigating Shai's abusers, I said, I'd really like to do your story one day. And he, he was a bit ambivalent about me doing that. But anyway, after obviously men going to jail and winning BAFTAs and things like that, he, he said, okay, we'll come and investigate my story. And his story was truly extraordinary of, you know, a marauding priest who had basically been allowed to abuse hundreds of boys um, with the knowledge of the Catholic Church, he just moved him around. Every time there was a scandal, he would just be moved to a different parish. And again, we went and just knocked on doors in the parish where he was abusing. And people, I think times have changed and people started to open up to us. And again, I put together a film, a one-hour investigation, and it actually it went out quite late at night on the BBC, but the BBC is actually can be watched on on one coast of Ireland and the, the it just absolutely again the irony is that again the BBC told me I had to go and confront Bishop and <laughs> I was just like god you know I, I keep telling you know I, I, I it's a slam dunk and you still make me go and do this which is really unfair so I had to get up early fly to Ireland and I knew that the bishop would be saying mass at 8 a.m. So I waited with a cameraman in the car park of the church and he turned up literally one minute before he was giving mass and he drove up in a big black BMW 
and he saw us there. He's a sophisticated media operator, um, Bishop Komiski. And so he, I don't know if he actually knew why I was there, but anyway, I approached his car and of course the camera was rolling. And as, as he was stopping his car and getting out, he started singing Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. And of course it was picked up by the camera audio. I didn't know this at the time. Anyway, he gets out of the BMW. He, he's, you know, he's in a rush because actually he's got one minute to get inside to start mass. And I'm saying, hello, Sarah McDonald, you know, BBC, you know, why did you allow this abuser to continue abusing all of these boys? And he said, I can't talk to you. I'm, I'm saying mass. And he, he started running up the steps of the, to the of the church and I ran up after him and and he actually stopped and he turned around and I said why did you allow the abuser to continue and he said I you know once I found out he uh, I, I, I stopped him you know I moved him and I said no you didn't you know you, you just basically moved him around where he just continued to abuse anyway he he turned around and ran up the steps and then slammed the door in my face and you know not being Catholic I just thought well that's just great TV perfect so went back to London finished the film it went out and and then again the proverbial hit the fan he was swamped by many you know angry allegations of what I had alleged in the film and also the fact that a boy now man had basically been with me Colin O'Gorman I mean incredibly brave man was, you know, going back and confronting his own horrible abuse. And we realized that boys, many boys had killed themselves. I mean, it was, it was a horrible story. And then it was, you know, looking at the institutional corruption within the Catholic Church that had allowed this to continue. Anyway, the long and short of it was that Bishop Komiski barricaded himself in the Summer Palace, surrounded by media for three days. And he was then ultimately called to the Vatican where he was asked to resign. So that was the first bishop ever to have to resign in the world for having covered up abuse by one of the one of their priests. And as you know, you know, the rest is history when it comes to Catholic Church and abuse. And this was at exactly the same time that the Boston Globe was doing the amazing um, investigations into cardinal law in Boston. And then I went on to make another three films. I mean, obviously Bishop Komiski was was jailed. His abuser had killed himself um, on the eve of, of a court case into the abuse, not not through me. This was many years before. And but then there was a, a major government inquiry that the opening lines of the government inquiry quoted my film as saying the government inquiry was being held because of the allegations made in in the film suing the pope so then the bbc did a follow-up film and to what happened after the film went out and then i did another film after that called um, sex lies in the vatican where we we looked at just the bigger institutional cover-up of of child abuse, which obviously, you know, is still resonating to this day. And then from there, I think I'd had enough of child abuse. It, it really destroys your soul. The, yeah, you know, it's very, children. very disturbing. I can, I, it is, yeah, yeah. exactly. So then that's does, when I moved on yeah. to more political stuff after that. Yeah, and then you've done some fascinating political stuff as well, which, I mean, I you know, it'd be great for my listeners to hear a couple of uh, such films that you have made, and then we can start talking about your company and how you founded it, because I can see that 
uh, you went undercover. There was something to do in Australia because of the detained refugees in camp. Mm. And then there was some film on Al-Qaeda for the BBC mm. uh, where you then interviewed the Bali bombers. And I think there's another one where you talked about where I, I see that you also did an expose of sham cancer clinics in Mexico. So, you know, it's a, it's a very sort of varied kind of coverage of very sensitive um, subjects. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Payal, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. Well, I, uh, after having, after my two first sort of long form films had such an explosive reaction and changed the course of history for my subjects, you know, for Colm and Shy, I mean, their lives were changed forever. You know, Colm then went on to become Irish person of the year and he wrote a book and now he's the, the CEO of Amnesty International. In, wow. in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is, a, this is a boy who at 17 was on the streets because of the abuse. And, you know, he, he really did pull himself up and, you know, was part of the big in, first investigation with the BBC. So when you've had that kind of experience and you realise that you, you have a lot of power that needs to be handled very carefully, of course, and you never you know, you can never lose sight of that. But the power of the media can be so, so incredible. It can also be so destructive. But it, it gave me the ability to really look um, at human rights. And I realized that that is really what motivated me. I, I no longer wanted to do cat up tree stories, um, which is really what I felt like I was doing when I was in the news. So I... I did, I, I did a big, out of this investigative unit at the BBC, yeah, we did a big Al-Qaeda series. So the Bali bomb had gone off the year before. And of course, there were continued attacks all over the world. And, you know, there was 9-11, etc. And so I, because I come from New Zealand and I'd all, you know, I had a, I traveled around Asia and I loved Asia and had done a lot of stories in Asia, I decided to, I, I went down and, and did a big story about Al-Qaeda across Asia, which was a combination of the Bali bomb, but it also looked at the um, thwarted terrorist attack by Jamaa Islamiyah in Singapore. Um, and also, of course, 9-11, there was a significant meeting held in Kuala Lumpur by the 9-11, you know, team that then went on to bring down the towers, um, which was also very significant as well. So Asia played a, a major role within Al-Qaeda's uh, setup. And the Bali bombers was, you know, just the most, the most awful story um, but the most fascinating, it gave a really fascinating insight into Al-Qaeda and how it operated and how Al-Qaeda, how the, the attacks were formed. And the, bar, the Bali bombers were in jail and I was able to get hold of the first ever interviews with them. And I didn't do the interviews myself, um, but I knew that they had done extensive interviews with this person. And then I, it, it took me six months of talking to that person to get those interviews out of that person. So that, and I got the raw, you know, rushes out of them. And so that was just incredible. 
And I worked with the police officer who ran the investigation into the Bali bombing and, and found the Bali bombers and captured them and jailed them, um, which was really, really interesting. I loved the whole forensic investigation, um, which I, I'm still really motivi- motivated by today. And then around the same time, I uh, was also horrified, but because I'm a New Zealander, to watch the Australian government instead of offering protection and humanitarian help to refugees fleeing war zones, of which wars that they were fighting in, uh, like the Afghan war and like the Iraq war at the time, they they sold the refugees to a fairly um, corrupt little nation called Nauru, which is way out in the middle of the Pacific, where these people were effectively locked up behind wire um, ch- children, men, women for years waiting for their asylum applications to be processed by the Australian government, I just thought was absolutely shocking. So because I am a New Zealander, I, they had, Nauru and the Australian government had stopped all Australian um, journalists getting in there, but they just didn't see me coming, basically. And I went down to New Zealand, again, with secret cameras, which I was much more adept at using now. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. then I hopped my way across the Pacific and got into the camps undercover. Um, and so that was my first big film about that subject but for the BBC, which I, I actually went back 13 years later when they were still locking up people, which was so shocking and did another undercover investigation and went back in this time because my mother is a Pacific anthropologist. So this time I took her with me as my cover, said, Mom, you need to, you need to say that you're investigating um, diabetes, okay, which they have a lot of it in this island. I said, you need to do that, and then I'm just your daughter coming with you, okay? <laughs> so we went back in and I got back into the camps. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and, 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 and I, I see that there are a couple of other very fascinating films that you've done uh, for the BBC, but I would now like to talk more about Make Waves. When did you set that up and what, what sort of prompted you to do that and what is uh, Make Waves all about? Yeah, so I uh, was asked by Bob Geldof. Uh, He had a big media company in London and I was asked by him to go and set up his media company, uh, the kind of Asian arm of his company in Singapore. And because I I knew Singapore well and I, uh, you know, had travelled extensively and worked extensively around Asia, um, I thought, well, that would be a really different thing to do. So I packed up my family. My husband is a film school composer, so he can work anywhere. And I moved with my children to Singapore and uh, set up, started setting up his company and, you know, trying to win series and programmes and things like that. All factual, of course. And unfortunately, within 10 months of having moved to Singapore, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So, of course, everything fell to pieces. And I just got up and moved straight back to London. I lost my job, of course. And I started going through extensive chemo and radiotherapy and operations and things like that to remove the tumour in my breasts. And 
while I was doing that, my original amazing editor from Newsnight, the first ever female editor of Newsnight, I'd always kept in touch with her and uh, we were, had become good friends. And she had now become the CEO of BBC World News. So she'd river, risen, you know, to very high up within the um, BBC hierarchy. And she said, I'm thinking about taking redundancy, been at the BBC 23 years and I, I just want to do something different. And I've always thought about having my own company. And would you think about setting up a company with me? And she had had breast cancer about seven years before me. And I'd, you know, I'd been there when she had, had gone through that. And, and I said, sure, if you were happy to set up a company with somebody who's, you know, doing chemo right now. And she was, and she was like, of course, you know, let's, that's what women are for. We can give each other the slack exactly, exactly as she had when I went undercover the very first time with my baby in tow. You know, now she was saying, yeah, let's, let's set up this company, um, you and me together. And so we did. Very slowly, we set up Make Waves, always with an office in Singapore and London, because we, we wanted to give ourselves an edge. Uh, London is one of the most competitive broadcast markets. And we, you know, we're, we're news and current affairs journalists. You know, we're not uh, reality TV. And that was very much in the reality TV time. And we knew that we would uh, just not be able to do a lot of that type of programming. So we just thought, well, let's also try and get some stuff out of Asia as well, since I had just been there and had already made some contacts down there. So yeah, the, I mean, the rest is history. It's been a slow grow. We've had our ups and downs, most definitely, and think, wondering if we were going to survive, particularly in the early years. But we stuck to our guns. And, and I think that's the the biggest lesson that we learned is don't try to pretend to be anything that you're not. And in the end, after, you know, after many trials and errors, we, we realized, look, we're good at, we're good at undercover. We're good at investigations. We're good at documentary. We're good at history. You know, we're not good at reality TV and no one's going to take us seriously in that front. We're good at art. So let's just see where we go. And so we've slowly built up this company, which is, you know, it's just unbelievable just um, how, I don't know how amazing it is and how much I enjoy it and how wonderful it is having an amazing business partner like Sean Kevill and, and how much I enjoy also having staff and young filmmakers to work with and, and how, how I can damn well do what, what I want, <laughs> which is the best thing about running your own company. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you on that one. Just a mention of a couple of films that, you know, that you have recently directed and produced that are really close to your heart. So, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, obviously you mentioned The Cancer Cell. Yes. Uh, which is The can Cell as an S-E-L-L. Because, you know, when you, anyone who has has been through cancer or any illness like that, you, you probably spend a lot of time on the internet wondering how the, whether you're going to survive or not. And that's what I did, of course. I mean, particularly being a journalist, I was looking at everything on the internet. And what I found was a lot of clinics that sat in Mexico and a number of other countries actually as well, where they sit in poorly regulated, within poorly regulated authorities. And there were just, you know, doctors and sham doctors just exploiting people who had probably run out of options. And it was that that really I found really upsetting because I, I you know, even though I had been told I, that my doctors were going for a cure, you know, I, 
a big chunk of me didn't believe it. So I could see that if you had been told that you, that there really, there was nothing else that your doctors could do for you, you are going to find it very hard to accept that. Human nature just does not allow people to just sit back and, and die. And so these people were offering quite brutal treatments, you know, heating you up, cooling you down, you know, lots and lots of sort of coffee enemas and things, but treatments which had no um, medical basis in showing that they actually could change your the course of your cancer. And I was also, as you know, I'm very inspired by human rights and civil rights. And I saw that Coretta Scott King, the wife of Martin, you know, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had died of ovarian cancer in one of these clinics, which I just thought was the saddest thing because she died paying some sham doctors a lot of money. She died while away from her family, probably having some horrific treatment that was probably very uncomfortable in her final days. So I went and looked at how they were selling these clinics which they I went to LA where they had a big you know fair where people were turning up and and you know all of these practitioners were selling these hospitals you know and it it was all about hope everything was about hope and and they just used people to record videos saying oh you know I thought my life was over and suddenly it's all okay I you know thanks to this hospital and this treatment you know I'm still here and I've recovered and I just know that a lot of those people died So I then shaved, my hair had actually grown back by this stage, but I shaved it off and put a secret camera on and I drove to Tijuana and uh, went in undercover to this clinic where Coretta Scott King had died and, and just, you know, looked at what they were offering me, which was they were offering all sorts of crazy treatment. They tried to bamboozle you with science and um, make you feel that they really have something that can really save you. And, but in the, would you mind, you know, remortgaging your house because it's going to cost 26 to 35, $40,000. And what surprised me was that I also then went openly and interviewed the head of the cancer for that whole, the Baja region. And actually he was incredible. He just said, these clinics are terrible. Um, we would like to close them down. We don't have the legislative power to be able to do that. And every time we close one of them down, another one opens. It is so awful. We tell people not to come to them because they may have an opportunity through more conventional treatment or getting on, you know, proper studies and treatment and trials to save them. But when they come to these clinics, you know, their cancer is no longer being treated. And then they realize that they are going to die and then they come back to conventional medicine and then it's too late. There's nothing that we can do. And so I was really heartened that actually the authorities were appalled and were trying to tackle these clinics. It was not that they had turned a blind eye to them in any way. So that for me was a very personal story. And, but then... Apart from going in finally once more undercover into Nauru, because, you know, again, that was a personal story for me, I I really have hung up my personal undercover cameras and now, you know, work with my own staff to teach them how to do undercover. And we do a lot of investigations for Asian television, um, a a big series in Asia called Undercover Asia, actually. We were the first um, sort of production company to really work on that. 
because we were the first production company in, in Singapore to know how to do undercover, you know, well. Yeah, and so now I, you know, I don't do any of it personally and I, I just work with, with my team. And since then, I've moved on to be doing these big environmental feature documentaries. So we've just got a, a one that's out now. Last year, we, we've premiered at the Venice Film Festival. And so that's a whole new and exciting genre, you know, these feature documentaries that people actually go to cinemas and watch and, and you can really tackle, but in a very cinematic way, really big subjects. And, and so now I'm working with Fernando Mareas, um, the Oscar-nominated director of City of God and Constant Gardner and, and the more recent Netflix series, The Two Popes. And we have a slate of environmental films and, and yeah, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. It's, it's fascinating. And obviously climate change is, is the subject of the, of our millennia. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, there's just so much going on and uh, it's, it's amazing how, you know, you've moved on from, and the fact that you were able to, the personal, especially the personal documentaries that you worked on, because they impact, they, you know, the cancer had impacted you, plus, you know, you were so close to Australia and you're so passionate about human rights. All of that has, um, has really given you such a, how can I say, so much experience that it, it's just amazing. It's just, I mean, I'm fascinated to hear you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely going to try and watch some of the, the documentaries. I'm not sure if they're archived on BBC or uh, you <clears throat> know, the ones that you've done now through your company, what are the different platforms that they are available on. Um, yes, I mean, lots of different ones, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, I really enjoyed listening to you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank so you much. so much. I hope I didn't wrap it on too much. I hope I didn't wrap it on too much. No, not at all. I mean, the whole point is for you to talk <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, to share your story with, uh, with the listeners. Excuse me, before we sign off, just are there any tips for uh, some of the listeners who may be interested in or working towards your kind of journalism in investigative journalism i mean definitely we work with a lot of young people and i think it's it's quite a calling and you do need to be quite dedicated because it's a highly competitive area and you, you really have to scratch and fight your way through to, to be noticed. But if you are passionate about it, you know, you do need to stick with it. I think one of the, the areas I would really like to see more minority young men and women, uh, it's a very, I mean, I know that I'm sitting in the UK, but the UK is a very multicultural area. And, and yet it's, it's so often the you know, the white educated, you know, middle class uh, students that come before us. And, and we're really, really now trying to bring a lot more diversity to our crews, which I think is very important. 
And so, you know, I would really encourage anyone from any of, you know, ethnic background to, if it's something that they're interested in, I think there are a lot of opportunities now. Uh, I think, you know, there's going to be many doors will open and they, you know, should, should really strive for it. But it's, it is a highly competitive industry, but that's because the rewards are absolutely incredible. And I just would never want to do anything else. And, you know, it's funny because when I, when I had cancer and I thought I might die, I, I said to myself, well, that's okay because I have, am, have always been fulfilled and I feel that I've left a, I've done some Legacy. good. Yeah. 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 Well, I've, I've done some good and that's, you know, and that's really all you can ask yourself at the end of your life is have I made a difference to other people's lives to, to, for the better? And I really felt that I had, and that was through journalism. Um, and through filmmaking, investigative filmmaking, and, and it's, it's, it's a privilege, you know, to have been able to do that. Fantastic. Thank you once again, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time. You're so and, welcome. <laughs> and uh, good luck with whatever else that, you know, that you, you are working on, because I'm sure like whatever you have worked on, I'm sure it's going to be incredible. Thank you so much. Take care and have a lovely day. Thank you. And, and you too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Sarah has such a fascinating story to share. I was completely riveted. Her undercover operations unearthing some very pertinent issues focused on human rights and seeing results is just so amazing. I'm very, very inspired by Sarah and hope you are too. Do continue listening to lots of inspiring stories on Melting Pot with me, Pyle. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.